Once again, God's holy word, Matthew 8. We will read just verses 1 through 4. I thought perhaps I could get through the next account, but we'll focus just on verses 1 through 4 this morning. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, God's holy word. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ, let us consider these things together. Post-holiday busyness can be a real drag, a big source of stress, even on the holiday itself. Sometimes you celebrating Christmas with family or close friends. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, I've got so much to do before the, the turn of the new year, or once the, the new year turns over, it's going to be um, so busy. In the midst of, of busyness, Oftentimes, we, we lose sight of those things which provide the foundation for, for why we're doing what we're doing. We work to provide for our families. But stress from work can cause us to mistreat our loved ones. We're, we're working to provide for them, and the, and the stress from work causes us to treat them in a way that, that we shouldn't. We're rushed through the day, and so we're rude to the people that we interact with. Students go to school because we ought to learn about God's word. Indeed, we about God's world. We have a, a moral duty to uh, learn about His world and to to seek to increase in intelligence and knowledge about His world. But uh, we're stressed and we're busy, and so we do the assignment in such a way that's so hasty we don't even really learn anything. And all of us have have been there and rushed through an assignment or written a paper in one night, or those kinds of things. And you walk away, you don't really know anything. You cram for a test, and it all goes out of your mind as soon as you take the test. But no matter how busy Jesus gets, and uh, this was mentioned at the the service of of recognition several weeks ago, that Jesus was the busiest man who ever lived. Everywhere he goes, he is desperately needed and desperately sought after. But no matter how busy Jesus gets, he he never allows his mission to be compromised, either in uh, what he is doing or the way he is doing it. He never acts opposite of his mission, which is to save sinners, and he never does so without an abundance of love and compassion. Jesus is always perfectly who he is. His mission is shaped by what he wills to do to save sinners. The manner in which he does all that he he does is shaped by his compassion. And so before the the busyness picks back up uh, in the post-holiday rush of things, let us have our faith be encouraged this morning by basking in the glory of the mission and compassion and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's consider these things together that we may be encouraged 
and love him more. First, uh, the clean one in a crowd of lepers. The clean one in a crowd of lepers. This is the, the Sermon on the Move. I got that uh, from Kent Hughes, former pastor of College Church in Wheaton. Right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes down, and this is the, the Sermon on the Move. There are ten miracles between verse 8-1 and verse 9-34. Jesus is not merely a preacher. He is he's a doer. Again, he's the busiest man who ever lived. Everywhere he goes, there's going to be someone who is seeking him. He's still going to be able to find time for prayer and for teaching and uh, discipleship, and yet he never changes or compromises his mission. What's the connection between his, his preaching and his doing, or specifically his, his preaching and his healing and his miracles? Well, Jesus proclaims that he is the light who has come to minister to a world that lives in the shadow of death. We've already heard in Matthew chapter 4, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is an ultimate light. This is a glorious light that gives life to a world that is entrenched in the curse of sin and death. Jesus proclaims himself to be just that. And so those claims ought to be backed up. It's not something that you can just sort of say, and nothing ever issues forth from that. So the, the preaching of Jesus is accompanied by and authenticated by his miracles. Matthew 4 again, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among uh, the people. Sometimes the miracles and the, the preaching of Jesus are divided apart from each other, especially by the people who are following him. Many people will follow Jesus because of his miracles. They want to see him display power, but his preaching will often turn people away. John chapter 6, all the things that Jesus is saying become very difficult for many, and uh, the crowd lessens quite a bit. But whatever Jesus is doing, there's never a disconnect between his preaching and and his doing. His miracles are rather a call to faith, a call to trust in the claims of who he claims to be, the Son of God, the light of the world, a Savior from sin. William Hendrickson says, by means of these wondrous works, Jesus reveals his kingly power over the physical universe, over evil spirits, and over the realm of sickness and death. The question to those who see the miracles of Christ is, do you believe what he claims to be? Do you believe Jesus when he claims to be the light of the world, the Son of God, the King of God's kingdom? Or are you just interested in in witnessing power on display? Are you interested in perhaps yourself uh, seeing or receiving his healing? This is a, a, a very important miracle account and uh, important for many ways, but one of the reasons is that it not only shows who Jesus is, it shows us who we are. This miracle shows not only who Jesus is, but it shows us who we are. Placed immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, right? but obviously Matthew is arranging his content according to certain themes and wanting to emphasize things to his, his readers and his hearers. So placed immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, this is an analogy. It's, it's a picture for the kind of Savior that Jesus is. 
and a picture of the kind of people that he brings into his kingdom. He's finished this glorious sermon in chapters 5 through 7, probably the, the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And here you have a picture of the kind of people Jesus brings into his kingdom. In other words, Jesus is the Savior who cleanses of spiritual leprosy. We read in, in Leviticus 13, back then, uh, leprosy covered kind of a whole host of skin afflictions. It wasn't just what we think of today as, as uh, Hansen's disease and kind of the rotting flesh. It certainly would have been uh, included in there, but also various skin ailments that rendered people unclean, just as much as the the physical affliction was the, the, the communal strife that people experienced. They, they were to live alone, as we read before. They were completely cast out. They were cut off from social and religious life in, in Israel. Many people who uh, came under these afflictions were foul to the senses in every way. They would have been difficult to look at. They could never be touched. They would carry with them foul odors. Their voices would become marred and hoarse as their vocal cords deteriorated. It was something that people rarely recovered from. When Naaman the Syrian is sent to the king of Israel in order that he may be cleansed of his uh, leprosy, the king of Israel says, Am I God to kill and to make alive? In other words, leprosy was, was seen as a, a kind of death. And so if Jesus is the, the king of the kingdom, and the Savior of those who are spiritually poor, then the picture being painted here for us is that our spiritual poverty is actually spiritual leprosy. Even though there is one leper in this crowd who emerges in the crowd, conspicuously, I might add, what we must see is that all of the crowd outside of Jesus' cleansing are spiritual lepers who need to be washed and cleansed. Not only this crowd, but everyone who ever lives outside of Jesus' cleansing is a spiritual leper. Blessed are those who mourn over sin, for they shall be comforted. There was a lot of mourning in the leprous community, certainly, seeing their life as, as over. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. We resist the notion of the seriousness of sin as, as a human race. Even as biblical Christians, we, we often, in our hearts, we, we push back against the thought that, are, are we really wretched sinners? Are we really vile in our sinfulness? We, we, we push back against that. Consider, just for a few moments, th this point, that the very presence of Jesus ought to teach us about the seriousness and the evil of sin. The very fact that he was sent to take on human flesh, born in a stable, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, to a virgin, Mary, the very fact that he comes to earth testifies of the seriousness and the evil of sin. Why would the Son of God have to come if sin were not so sinful? I'm going to quote here at length one of my favorite men to quote, as I often do, John Newton. And here he's making the point that we see the evil of sin in that God spared not his own son. So listen here. He says, the bitter fruits of sin are indeed visible everywhere. Sin is the cause of all the labor, sickness, pain, and grief under which the whole creation groans. 
Sin often makes a man a terror and a burden, both to himself and those about him. Sin occasions discord and confusion in families, cities, and kingdoms. Sin has always directed the march, ensured the success of those instruments of divine vengeance whom we style mighty conquerors, those ravagers of mankind who spread devastation and horror far and wide and ruin more in a few days than ages can repair, have only afforded so many melancholy proofs of the malignity of sin. For sin, a shower of brimstone fell upon a whole country. For sin, an overwhelming deluge destroyed a whole world. For sin, principalities and powers were cast from heaven and are reserved under chains of darkness to a more dreadful doom. But none of these things, nor all of them put together, afford such a conviction of the heinous nature and destructive effects of sin as we may gather from these words, he spared not his own son. Everything that you see, that is connected to sin and sinfulness and the curse of sin and death. You could add it all together, and none of them ought to convince us of the seriousness and evil of sin more than this one statement, he spared not his own son. If you resist the truth of the sinfulness of your sin, the exceeding sinfulness of your sin, remind yourself that God spared not his own son. And that leads us into the second movement this morning, coming to the clean one. Coming to the clean one. The, the upshot of this story is that though sin is immeasurably wide and deep, beyond even our own ability to fathom, God's compassion and mercy and grace are wider and deeper still. It also shows us the connection between the salvation that Jesus gives and faith. It shows that those who will know and experience his salvation are those who come to Jesus. And they come to Jesus knowing who they are and believing in who he is and throwing all of their confidence upon him. That's another aspect of understanding the, the miracles and the healings of Jesus. The emphasis throughout the gospel is not that Jesus is just throwing around his healing weight so that the miracles themselves can be praised, or that he can be praised just for the miracles in themselves, but rather that it is Jesus who heals those who have faith in him. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in this story. Look at the faith of the leper, a beautiful picture of faith and an encouragement to our own faith. What does he do? First, he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. The leper breaks all kinds of laws, rules, social and religious conventions. It would seem from this story that, that he, uh, he, the way he comes up to Jesus, we are not told whether he shouts, unclean, unclean, as Leviticus 13 prescribed for him to do. Uh, lepers were supposed to be at least six feet away. That may sound familiar to some of you. They were supposed to be at least six feet away if they were downwind from someone. If they were upwind, they needed to be 150 feet away. Tells you that they knew something about germs back then, too. Uh, they could not stick their head into a house 
without the entire house becoming unclean. They were, others were not even, it was not lawful for you to greet a leper. You know, you think of the Midas touch, and we often misunderstand the Midas touch. It's actually a terrible curse, right, that everything he touches turns to gold. And this is something like that, but even worse. They, they were a walking environment of, uh, of uncleanness. Everything they come into contact with would come, become unclean. Something to see about the, the leper coming to Jesus is that he faces the shame of his condition. And he walks through that shame to Jesus. And here we have a, a poignant picture of what happens when we come to Jesus Christ. For if we come to Christ, we cannot come to him downplaying our shame. We cannot come to him ignoring our shame or acting as if our sinfulness is not shameful. In society today, there's a, there's a massive effort to cover the shame of various sins. And, and you see this really nowhere uh, more clearly than in the, the, the sexual revolution. An organized effort to, to normalize that which cannot be normalized. All kinds, all manners of, of, of heinous sins, both heterosexual and homosexual. Bodily, even bodily mutilation and things that can only be described as destroying the bodies which God gave to us. A massive uh, effort to minimize and erase the shame of sin. We see that in our society. But we also see and we sense the, the ways in which we try to do that within our own hearts as well. The shame for sin is within us too if we look honestly. As Paul called himself the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. We ought to view ourselves in our own hearts that way. So to come to Jesus, we come to him not hiding our shame, not minimizing our shame. And though this leper, this would have been possibly the most shameful walk of his life. I mean, think about what he had to endure. To come to Jesus, to, and we don't know exactly how close, but there was some effort to approach him. And think about all the scorning that he would have received. Probably people would have been screaming at him for what he was doing. Possibly people would have spit on him for what he was doing. Or they would have shrieked when they saw him and realized that they had, been, they had entered his bubble of uncleanness. But what does he see? On the other side of that shame, he sees a blessed future because of Jesus. This is not only facing the shame at conversion, the sinner who first comes to Christ, but we must always thoroughly deal with our sin. As believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we must do. We must thoroughly and seriously deal with our sin. We must ask that God would bruise us so that we may always remind ourselves that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. As we discover all of the dark and deep corners of the sinfulness of our hearts, we remind ourselves day by day there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in me. And that teaches us to prize him above all, to make him the absolute chief treasure of our souls. Richard Sibb says, the more vile we are in our own eyes the more precious he will be to us. So he comes to Jesus. 
Secondly, he worships Jesus. You'll notice something that's going on here. If you were here yesterday morning, this man is doing something very similar to what the wise men, the magi did when they come to Jesus. They came and they worship. This leper comes to Jesus and then he worships. Again, it's the same Greek verb, proskuneo. It's always used in Matthew with a clear connection to the worship of the divine. When Satan tempts Jesus, he demands that Jesus fall down before him or worship him using this, this verb, proskuneo. Jesus responds by saying that we worship, proskuneo, we worship God alone. So this is what the leper does. He falls down before Jesus in worship. We could say many things about this, but just want to focus on the belief that he has in the sufficiency and power of Jesus. He worships him because he believes him to be able to save and powerful enough to save. He trusts in his sufficiency. What's the, the Heidelberg definition of saving faith? Not only a sure knowledge of all that God has shown us in his word, it's a, it's a, it's a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in us by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also. Not to other people just alone, but to me also. Forgiveness of sins and righteousness and salvation. Me also. Perhaps there are no two words to the heart of the believing that are more meaningful, more beautiful to the person who has grasped the leprosy of the heart. Lord, if you will, the leper says, you can make me clean. There would have been many. Again, Jesus is coming down from the Sermon on the Mount here in the way that Matthew uh, portrays it to us. And great crowds are following him. And there are probably many people who were enamored with all of the things that Jesus had said and his, his eloquence and the beauty with which he was able to, to connect ideas and proclaim things as one who had power. And when the leper said this, you can make me clean, there must have been many in that crowd who said, oh, no way. There is no way that this man can make this leper clean. But this is precisely the question of faith, isn't it? Jesus tells us that he is mighty to save. He created the world and the skies and the seas and all that dwells therein. He suffers on behalf of sinners. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is at this very moment interceding for sinners at God's right hand. Do you believe that he can make you, even you, clean? This man, this leper, needs to go nowhere else. There's nowhere else that he has to go. You ever try to do a construction project at your home nowadays? The various permits that you have to get and permissions, all this kind of thing. You've got to hang this in the window. You've got to get the supplies. You've got to get all different kinds of contractors. You, you, you only need for you the salvation of your soul, that which is most important, you need to go to one place. And you don't need to be prepared with any set of rituals either. There was a, a god in Greek mythology, Asclepios, and his temple was at Epidaurus. And in ancient Greek mythology, he was the, the god of healing, the god of miracles. So you've got leprosy or some condition, and you believed in that Greek pantheon of gods. This is where you would go. People who sought healing were 
required to go through various preparation uh, rituals. And then they would be sent to have an, enc an encounter with this God. And what would happen? Nobody could quite say. But this is what the entrance of his temple says. When you enter the abode of the God, which smells of incense, you must be pure. When you come into the presence of this God, you must be pure. What a difference from Jesus. You know, without without the, the mediating work of the Son of God, we would be the Son of God, we would be in a similar situation, wouldn't we? Because we cannot enter the holiness of the majesty of God without the blood of Christ covering us. But because of the mercy and grace and compassion of Jesus Christ, what a difference from Asclepios, Greek God of mythology. He has the power to do it all himself. You need to go nowhere else. You don't need to find anyone else, but you must come in faith. You must come in repentance. You must come trusting in him. Is this your faith? Do you come to Jesus, not denying your shame? But through the shame of your sinfulness, you see the blessedness that lies on the other side. Do you worship him? Do you reserve that place in your heart for Christ alone because you find redemption in him alone? Do you trust in his sufficiency to save you, even you? Do you have a me-also faith? We close this morning by considering then the compassion of the clean one. It was thought that leprosy was part of God's judgment, that it was, it was a way that God kind of inflicted uh, some sort of sickness on people who had been especially sinful, almost like a, a direct curse of God. Was leprosy God's judgment? Well, we must say no and yes. Not in the sense that most people thought it was. Oh, well, he was really bad. That's why he got that, that leprosy. It wasn't a way for God to strike people who had been especially sinful or to, to uh, hit them with a plague to show everyone else how displeased he was with that particular person. But leprosy was to be a, a universal reminder of the curse of sin. Just as, as all sickness and all affliction reminds us that, that this is not the way that God created the world. And it has become that way because of sin and sinfulness and rebellion. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When people ask him about those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, this great tragedy happened. They must have done something really bad. What do you think about that, Jesus? He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It wasn't a direct judgment upon them. It should be a reminder that we all live under the curse of sin. See, God does not delight in keeping us under the curse of sin and death. Sin is a, is a, is a reality, and the curse of sin is, is a reality. But in the midst of that, we have the compassion of Jesus Christ. We have the, the mercy of Jesus Christ. We have his eagerness to save. We have his joy in saving. We have his compassion that reaches out to the leper. So the leper says to him, if you will. Now that's not bringing it to Jesus and saying, if you will do this in the sense of, you know, if, if you will do this in the future. What he is appealing to is the will of Jesus Christ himself. His desire. Is it your desire to cleanse me? Because if you desire to cleanse me, I believe that you can. And Jesus responds by saying, I will. I will. 
In other words, I desire, I, I want to cleanse you. I desire to save you. I desire to cleanse you from this leprosy and from your sin and to grant you salvation. You might expect to find repulsion, rejection at the hands of Jesus, but instead we find compassion. One theologian, Thomas Goodwin, says, Christ is love covered over in flesh. And he reaches out and he touches him, which is an astounding thing because anyone who comes into contact with a leper himself becomes unclean. So what do we say to that? Well, I'm going to read uh, another somewhat lengthy quote from uh, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, where he says this, In Levitical categories, Jesus is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanness of his mind and heart, the simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did he do? What did Jesus do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. We can all testify to the humaneness of touch. A warm hug does something warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there is something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. He overcomes the uncleanness. So in Jesus, we have not only the willingness to save, but the power and the ability to save and to cleanse. The end goal of, of his compassion is, is transformative. He's creating something new. He's not identifying with sin. He's saving the sinner, rescuing him out of his plight, bringing him into another realm, literally bringing him into the future of blessedness seating the sinner in heavenly places. It's a compassion of rescue, which brings us to him forevermore. And that's, the, that's what we see about Jesus. And that compassion, that love, that mercy, that grace is available to sinners today. The same astounding compassion that we see in Matthew 8, that is what is available for sinners today who come to Jesus Christ. It's not far off. The compassion of Jesus Christ is not far off. It's available to all lepers who come to him, who bow down before him, who know his power, who believe in his sufficiency and power to save, who have a me-also faith. Embrace the one who embraces the sinner. Don't run from your shame. Run through it and come and live forever cleansed by Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we praise you and we thank you for this wonderful reminder of the mercy and grace and compassion that you show, that you manifested in your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we bask in the glory of these things as an encouragement to our faith that we would do each and every day what we must do, that every day we would come to Jesus and trust in him, and rely upon him, the eternally compassionate one. Oh, Father, we thank you for his grace and forgiveness and the grace and forgiveness that you showed us in and through him. We pray in his name. Amen.
you would take your bulletin insert and uh, let's sing praise the Savior's highest glory. Stand together, sing praise the Savior's highest glory as we close. Go in the grace, mercy, and compassion of Jesus Christ. Receive God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.